Hey everybody, welcome back to The Smattering, where we ask the important questions about investing. I'm Jason Hall, joined by the voice of the people, Jeff Santoro. Hey Jeff. Hey, how are you? I'm good. We made it through a quarter. We, we did. Made it through a quarter of the year. Q1 is in the books, which is an appropriate place to start because we are going to dedicate this entire episode to the smattering portfolio and announce the Q1 winner and all the stuff that goes along with that. So yeah, it's a, uh, I can't believe we're a quarter of the way through the year. That's crazy. Uh, let me, let me say this before we, before we dive in here. So what we're not going to do. So for those that don't remember, and we'll get into more details, there's 16 stocks, I think 15, 16 stocks here. We're not going to do a stock by stock deep dive into what happened with those stocks in the quarter. We're not going to do that. This is going to be more general lessons learned. I think it's going to be a fun conversation. So if you're, if you're not looking, if you're looking for a show where it's just going to be numbers, it's not this show. If you're not looking for a boring ass show, that's just numbers. This is your show. Stay with us. Before we dive into that, just really quick housekeeping reminders. Thanks to everyone who's been continually listening to the show. We really appreciate that. If you could be so kind as to also give a recommendation or rate the show on your podcast app, go to the YouTube channel, subscribe and like all the videos there. Like that really helps us. That helps our videos get out into more people's ears and eyes. And we appreciate that. And as always, you can reach us on Twitter at smattering show is the handle. And we look forward to hearing from you. All right, Jason, let us, let's dive in here. So first of all, let's quickly recap before we talk about who won, let's quickly recap what we're doing with the contest. So if, if people haven't heard it, Jeff, I'm going to go ahead and refer them back to episode 32. Um, that's, that's the episode where we announced uh, the details and we actually picked the stocks. So go back and find that in your podcast player. Listen to that one first and then come back here. We'll, we'll wait. Yeah. We'll wait for them to do that. Okay. I think they're, I think everybody's back. If they're not back yet, it's, <laughs> It's their own, their own fault. I so always wonder if people actually do that. <laughs> if anyone actually does it, so let us know if you actually paused at that point and went back and listened. I just, I'm always curious about that. Yeah. It'd be, it'd be awesome. So, but yeah, the short, the short version is that you, and this is something really pretty early. We started this podcast last August, but pretty early in the process, we started talking about different ideas. And one of the things that we thought would be fun is just to kind of have a little bit of a healthy competition to demonstrate to Jeff how much better of a stock picker I am than him. But most importantly, for our listeners to demonstrate how much better stock pickers they are than us combined, but, and also to raise a little bit of money for charity. So again, the idea for the contest is, is just that we have a group of portfolios, some stocks that I picked, that's my portfolio, some stocks that Jeff picked our members. We did some Twitter polls and our viewers, they picked stocks too. Then we did a team portfolio. That's me and Jeff. We'll explain why that's the case when we get to it. And then we had an unportfolio, which is representative of companies that Jeff and I, neither one ever really would see in our own portfolios. There's a little irony to that, but we'll get to. Yeah. And so I'll say right off the bat that the charity piece is still sort of being formed. Jason and I chose the charities that we want to give to, but we still don't have ones nailed down for the audience, which honestly is fine. If, you know, we, we're happy if listeners give any money to any charity. The whole point was to just be charitable while having some fun here. So we'll talk more about that, but let's dive in. So we are through a quarter of the year and let's give the results last place to first place. So in last place after three months is 
the team smattering portfolio. So that is the three stocks that Jason and I picked together. And they are they were down at down six percent on the year as of March 31st. So that's the last place portfolio. Second to last place is my portfolio. I'm sorry to say uh, that's up 10% on the year. Now, if you had told me before we started, Jason, my portfolio was going to be up 10% by the end of March, I would have been really, really happy based on how 2022 yeah, I think that's a really good point. Yeah. But still, this is a one-year contest and I am currently in second to last place. Third place would be Jason's portfolio, which is up 17%. And then the top two are the audience's portfolio, which is up 30%. And referencing the irony that Jason spoke of earlier, the unportfolio, the four stocks that neither of us would ever consider owning is winning <laughs> and it is up 37% on the year. So those are the quick Q1 numbers as a first step into this conversation. One more piece of good information. If you're picking individual stocks, obviously you need to have some reason you're doing that. For most people, if you're just buying your own stocks, it's because you think you can do better than the market. Uh, the S&P 500, using that as our proxy for the market, was up 7.5% through the end of the month. And that, that's total returns. That includes dividends paid. The stocks that we picked, it just, we just gave price improvement, doesn't include dividends. Mostly that doesn't matter except for just a couple companies like Simon Property Group. Dividends is a pretty big part of their return profile. But for the most part, it's not a big impact. Yeah, and I think that's important because other than the combined portfolio that you and I picked, everyone else is beating the market. Their little three-stock portfolios are beating the market so far. So yeah, and the other thing I'll say before we go any further, and then I want to we can talk about who's going to pay who, but I also think it's just worth pausing and just a one-year contest is not representative of how either Jason and I think about our own portfolios or how we would suggest other people think about theirs. This is purely just a one-year kind of fun thing. And we'll keep this portfolio open and available, the links in the show notes, because it will be fun to see how it does over two, three, four, five years. So in terms of winning, we decided that anytime the unportfolio wins, the charity of the audience will be the one that will give the money. So we're going to pick one on behalf of the audience. And yeah, Jason, we've, got, we've, we've gotten some submissions through DM and email that we still need to do a little more vetting. A couple that are just really small charities. And frankly, I don't trust anonymous people on the internet. Call me crazy, but I just, we need to do a little bit of vetting to make sure these are uh, legitimate and trustworthy before we put them out there. Yeah. But whatever we land on, Jason and I are each going to give $50 to that charity. That was the agreed upon amount we were going to give. And you can go back and listen to that earlier episode to hear all the details. All right. So Jason, first question for you, how do you feel about the companies in that you picked in your portfolio as we sit here a quarter of the way through the year? So the three stocks, and I want to give the order that we, that the stocks were picked and I think that's useful too. We thought it would make sense for listeners to pick first. So we couldn't cherry pick maybe some of our favorites if they were really popular with listeners. So the audience picked first and then the team smattering portfolio was picked last. It's funny because I was, so CrowdStrike, Lemonade and Trex are my three. And I really struggled with Lemonade as kind of like my moonshot between that and going for a company that I'd like view is really kind of ultra safe and conservative with how they allocate capital. And that's Boston Omaha. And I feel really great right now because Boston Omaha stocks down about 11%. And lemonade's up a little bit. It's not as up as, as much as it was the first couple months, but 
no, seriously, I, I feel really, I feel really good about CrowdStrike and Trex. They're doing well. The, you know, it's a tough year for, for, for any companies that are related to housing, but Trex has just shown for years how good management and really great products and a really hyper focus on generating good operating leverage with your business and having some real durable competitive advantages can serve investors. And they've shown that. Uh, the thing with Lemonade is I'm still waiting for them to figure out how to be an insurance company. And hopefully this is the year they show that. That was my whole thesis is they do everything great except for underwrite at profitable premiums. If they can like figure that part of their business out, it's this is going to be a huge winner. Yeah. And Jason and I both, the three companies in each of our portfolios are companies that we own and believe in for the long term. That was not a rule necessarily for this contest, but I think yeah, we I both think, end I think besides Amazon, I own all of the companies that both of us picked. And I think you own all six. Yes, I own the three. The only one that we picked together I don't own is Simon Property Group, but I own everything else that well, you no, I'm talking on. about this the the your portfolio and my portfolio. Oh yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yes. I do. You know what? You're right. I own the th I own the eight of the nine that either you or I picked or we picked together. Right. So it's funny that you mention, you know, Lemonade was your moonshot. We've talked about that before. Mine, I, I feel like I had two in my portfolio. So I, my three are Amazon, Outset Medical, and the Trade Desk. And the one that I feel like was my highest conviction when we did this at the very end of 2022 was definitely the trade desk. I, I feel like there's just tons of tailwinds behind that company. And they're going to, I just felt like they were going to have a strong year. And so far I've been right. My first yeah, pick has been one of the best performance stocks of all of the ones in the contest. Yeah. And that's kind of, that's the only reason I'm doing even okay. Well, that's not true. Amazon's up 23%. I mean, that, that's yeah. pretty good too. Yeah. And it's funny you, thing is you've got the worst performer. That's what's hurting you. Yeah. When you have three stocks and one of them's down 30%. Yeah. Yeah. And I had two that were sort of like, maybe not the best choices for a one-year contest. So Amazon, I do think at some point is going to get out of the malaise they, that the stock has been in and get, get right-sized on the e-commerce side of the house and, you know, Amazon Web Services is always going to grow pretty strongly. I, it seems like Andy Jassy is pretty, pretty interested in, you know, we, I know Zuckerberg coined the year of efficiency, but it seems like Amazon is a little, on a little bit of an efficiency kick too. I just didn't know when I picked it, if they'd be able to write the ship within the calendar year of 2023. So that was the risk in that pick. And Outset Medical is just a tiny company at the beginning of its journey. So the fact that it was up 9% at the end of January, but is now down 29% is not it's, super it's surprising here. If you, if, yeah. if you think about it, because they have a really compelling product, they're just swimming upstream against some really entrenched competition. And they're trying to change the way an entire industry does something. And that's really hard in healthcare. It is. But on the flip side, if Q2 or Q3 earnings come out and, and all of a sudden they've made enormous gains, or there's some other news that breaks, like this is the kind of stock that's volatile in the sense that it could jump up 20, 30% in a day. Yeah. I mean, right, right now it's the, it's the worst performing stock of, of every stock and it could finish the year. It could easily be the best performing stock and not right. even be and, close. And that was the risk I took in choosing it. So that's sort of where I'm thinking about with my three, not, we don't need to go deep into detail, but you know, just, I feel like our combined portfolio, and I want to hear your thoughts on this too, even though it is the worst performing, all three stocks are down at through the end of March. 
I still feel really good about those three companies. Boston Omaha, I want to hear what you have to say about that, Jason, because they just reported a couple weeks ago and everything looked on track to me, but there was nothing even remotely interesting or exciting really that came out of it. There was no new acquisitions, really. There was no new pieces of the asset of the the asset management side of the business to, to like kind of sink your teeth into. There were some questions that were kind of unanswered. I know they don't give a lot of detail. There's no earnings call. It's just a 10 Q and that's it. Maybe we'll get some more insight when they put out their annual letter or after they have their shareholder meeting in the beginning of May. But I always feel like the market doesn't know what to do with Boston Omaha. And that's why it's always sort of middling around. Yeah. That's because the market doesn't know. You know, I don't think that's fair. I think the market does know what to do with it in a way. I just, honestly, I kind of maybe wish more stocks kind of behave this way because you look through all of these portfolios and you think about like Amazon and your two unportfolio picks, Meta and Tesla. I mean, if there was, if there was ever a better time to, to pick those stocks in the past couple of years, than the beginning of, of this year, I can't think of what it is. They were all significantly beaten down. Amazon is not a 23% better business than it was in January. Right. It's just the market's recognition of it has changed. And with Boston Omaha, my guess is that nine out of 10 people listening to us right now are like, what the hell is Boston Omaha? I don't even know what this is. It's two, two towns. What do you, what do you mean? And that's kind of the point is it's this very under the radar business with these separate pieces of operations that aren't really related beyond the fact that they're good, stable cash generative businesses. And the CEO's goal is to take those cash generation from those businesses, allocate it to new stuff, rinse and repeat, right? The people bandy around comparing it to Berkshire Hathaway and the business model is kind of similar, right? Cause you're building a conglomerate and there's a little bit of a family relationship there that I don't think is relevant, but it's unsurprising to me that that's the case, but that's a stock that it's really going to take some sort of catalyst until it gets larger and becomes more widely followed. And that the whole measuring, you know, the, the way, the weighing machine aspect of it right, can kind of yeah. kick in with, with a long, like give us another five years of consistently growing book value and operating cash per share and showing like good return on capital and, and the market's going to pay a lot more attention. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I, so maybe, yeah, maybe I said it the wrong way. Like, I don't know that you're right. It's not that the market doesn't know how to value it. It's just, I don't know that the market pays that much attention to it or at least doesn't bid it up or bid it down so dramatically like it does some of these other tech stocks. I'm still pretty confident about Datadog and Simon Property Group. You know, we've said before about Simon Property Group that it they have the best malls and malls are not dead. So they should be fine in the long run. And like you said, not that we're counting the dividend, but from an investing standpoint, they do pay a nice dividend. So I don't know. Do you, I, you have any other thoughts on our combined portfolio here? I still feel pretty good about it. Yeah, I do. I, do. I, I, I will say this. And again, I kind of it's not entirely apropos nothing. But people look at REITs right now, especially like commercial REITs. And that includes like mall REITs that kind of get pulled into that. Because if you look at Simon Property stock since mid-March, mid it's down a ton. There's like a lot of fear about commercial. And I think there's some opportunities out there. So, All right. Any thoughts before we move on to the next question here about either the audience's portfolio or the unportfolio, just as a 30,000 foot view of them? Yeah. Since you ask, since you ask, Jeff. I do want to point out that the two stocks that, that I picked, my two one portfolio stocks, on average, 
are are up one percent. They're unperforming, underperforming the market, while yours, your two, are on average up seventy two percent. So the two stocks that Jeff, that he he the 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 hill he chose to to defend that he would never own, are up seventy two percent. That's that's a pretty good five years in the past. 89 days. Yeah, not looking great. So I will say this. I will I will admit a fault and then I will get I will defend myself in response to what you just said. I will admit I picked these two companies because I just have a moral reason for not wanting to own them. However, the rate at which Meta was burning cash on what I think is something that will never pan out, I really did think it was going to be another tough year for them. I was not expecting Mark Zuckerberg to come out and talk about efficiencies and say, say the right things. Yeah. So now what I do wonder is I think him saying the right things boosted the stock, but if he doesn't, if the company can't show the progress that he's touting with his words over the next couple quarters, I do wonder if some of those returns. Yeah. Yeah. Now with a 76% head start, it could give back a significant amount of those and still probably beat the market, but we'll see how that shakes out. And Tesla, I just, I keep thinking that it's going to, eventually the competition is going to catch up with them and they're not going to be this, you know, have this crazy lead with EVs, but every quarter they seem to impress Wall Street. So, and, you know, they just released their production numbers the other day and there's some mixed feelings about how good or bad they are, but they're, they certainly didn't hurt the stock price. So yeah. If we lose the, over the course of the year to our own portfolio, it will likely be because of me. So <laughs> I will say that in closing. So I have a question for you. Yeah. So looking at, at, at your stocks or looking just broadly at the, at the portfolio, all of the stocks in here, where's your, where's your conviction right now? I still have really high can, I'll go through each of mine really quickly. I have a little bit more conviction in Amazon now than I did at the beginning of the year. I want to tell myself it's not because the stock's up, but I feel like, you know, I don't like to see layoffs, but it seems like the layoffs and where they're laying people off says to me that they are conscious of needing to turn things around on like the operating margin side of the financial statement and make the profitability a little bit better. So I think that bodes well for them, especially if, if they can reaccelerate some growth. So I have a little bit more conviction in Amazon. I have just as much, if, if not more conviction in outset medical, I, I, again, I just think they need time. And I have the same amount of high conviction in the trade desk. I wish I hadn't picked my two unportfolio stocks. I wish I had gone down the road of what you did, just actual trash companies, but yeah, I don't know that I have any regrets or anything. I have still pretty high conviction. What about you? What, how are you feeling about your three or, or any of the others? So Lemonade, I just, we got their annual results. We got their Q4, but it doesn't really feel like it's enough information. And there's not any clear evidence that that whole getting better at underwriting insurance at profitable premiums has improved. So, so nothing's really changed there for me. So pull that one completely out. And then you look at CrowdStrike, you look at Trex. And so for CrowdStrike, you know, the stock, sure, you, 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 there's, there's one, one way you can say, okay, you know what, it's still down by half. As much as it's up 30%, that's great, it's down by half. 
but it's a stock that's still, since it IPO'd in late 2019, it's up 135%. And you start doing the valuation metrics and it's not cheap. I think like on a price to operating cash flow, I think it trades for a reasonable high end of the reasonable valuation, but it's all about execution, right? So that's the thing I'm thinking about CrowdStrike is they've got to continue to grow at a really high rate. And we've got to find out, are there, is there, are their products as sticky as we think they are uh, competing against the Microsofts of the world and the other, you know, cloud security companies, mm -hmm. they've got some good partnerships. They've got kind of some good frenemy relationships and just some good, like strategic partner relationships with other players where they integrate well together. But you know, it's just, it's not a slam dunk. 30 yeah, what I, three months is, is, what is, I wonder is, about, what I wonder about CrowdStrike is there's so many good cybersecurity companies out there. Like Fortinet is great. CrowdStrike's great. Palo Alto Networks does a nice job. Even like a company like Cloudflare does a little bit in cybersecurity too, even though that's not really the biggest part of their business. Microsoft um, is the one that worries me the most. Well, what I wonder is the mar it's a it's a growing thing, right? We're always going to need and probably need yeah. more and more cybersecurity. But what I wonder is, does everyone just sort of do well, but grow just normal 10, 15% a year, not the crazy 40, 50, 60% growth that like sort of got CrowdStrike on everyone's radar. And right. then at, like you said, at the valuation, does it not beat the market over, over the next five years? Because it's just, it's doing well, but not lead, living up to the growth that needs to meet its valuation. That's my concern yeah. with the whole yeah. sector. Well, there's um, still a ton of dilution happening, right? Stock-based compensation, even though they're cash generative, right? When you factor in eventual share buybacks to buy back all the stock they're issuing, you know, that it's not quite as free cash flow positive as, as you'd like it to be. So all of those things factor in. I'm, I'm with you on that. Now, thinking about Trex, Jeff, this is one that has just been such a stalwart over the years. So many competitive advantages, the scale of their distribution, their relationships with contractors, being in the big box stores for DIYers and contractors. It's just, it's the, it's the product. It's the, you say tracks and everybody, you know, that's what everybody knows what you're talking about. You know, you, you talk about some of these other brands and nobody, nobody has a clue. Right. So that's, that's how powerful the brand is. Their, their margins are some of the best out there. And the stock came down from its high in large part, not just because it was overvalued, but it was, but the concerns about housing, right? And real estate values and rising interest rates and all that stuff, slowing down their business. But also we saw a huge, they reported a huge slowdown in orders, right? As, as their distribution partners try to right size their inventory and make sure they're in the right position as things kind of slow down. So I think it's, it's, it's fairly valued, but there could be a ton of volatility depending on what happens with the economy and housing more specifically. So when you think about this as being like a one-year contest though, does that make you have lower conviction in Trex simply through that lens, not long-term investment, but like, it, does it make it, it a, a lower for, conviction? It, it doesn't for, for, if you look at some of the housing data that's come out over the past six weeks or so it tends to be relatively favorable. People are buying houses again. And again, people buying houses isn't necessarily the great thing for tracks. People um, staying in the houses that they have. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a long-term leading indicator, people buying houses. But 
people staying in the houses they have is, is the thing that I think is going to be good for tracks. Rise stable interest rates, I think, is the most important thing for tracks because decks are expensive. A track deck, you can drop 15, 20 grand on one of these if you do a big giant fancy deck. Even just putting the decking down to replace the wood on your existing deck, you know, you can drop a few grand fast. And people a lot of times people don't just have that money laying around. They buy it on credit. So stable interest rates, I think, is probably the big thing. All right. One thing I'm wondering, is there a stock you wish you had put into your three stock portfolio? And if so, what would you replace? It's hard. I know what, what's hard for me when I think about that question is I'm going to, I would immediately go through my portfolio and just look at what's, what's done the best <laughs> over the first three months, but that's not really what I'm asking. I, all right, let me rephrase it this way. Is there a company that has impressed you over the first three months of the year with their business performance that makes you think, oh, this might have a better 2023 than I would have thought? Maybe that's a better question to ask. I guess maybe if there was like a like a FOMO, this is the one that I maybe I should have done. It might be Texas Instruments. Hmm. The stock's done pretty well this year, but the, the idea is that, you know, kind of at the beginning of the year, I think it was pretty significantly undervalued. And you look at all the levers they're pulling with their expansion, lowering their costs with their bigger form factor for their manufacturing that's going to drive their unit costs way down. The moats, just the moat they have of making these legacy products where there's a lot of industries that need analog semiconductors for a machine that's 10 or 20 or 30 years old, right? They need that exact same piece. And this is the company that makes that stuff their vertical integration, like end to end from customer acquisition, all the way through manufacturing distribution, all of it, right? Nobody in the semiconductor industry has what they do. So maybe that's, maybe that's the one instead of swinging for the fences with, with lemonade, you know, that may, may have been the best way to go. Yeah. I have two that just continue to impress me. And I, I have a little bit of like, you know, non-buyer's remorse, I guess. So one is ASML, just thinking about semiconductors. So they're the company that sells the essential machine that every company needs in order to make semiconductors. And they're the only company in the world that makes said machine. They have a, a legit monopoly. And I just can't imagine a future. If you, if you want to manufacture the most advanced semiconductors. You have to buy this machine from them. I can't imagine a future where they're not an enormous winner. And so that's one. The other one that really has impressed me that I've owned for a long time, I bought it in the middle of the pandemic, which is Ryman Hospitality Group. It's a REIT. They own all of the Gaylord Hotel properties that are big with conferences. They hold huge conferences. There's four or five of them around the States. They also own the Ryman Auditorium and the Grand Old Opry in Nashville. And they the extent to which they have recovered from the pandemic lows where everything was shut down just continues to astound me. Like the results they put every quarter are just stunning. It's such a great business because their, their traffic hasn't completely recovered back to like 2019 levels, but they've, they're reporting record revenues. Now they're just so efficiently run their balance sheets back to where basically where it was, you know, they took, they cashed in all of their revolving debt when lockdowns happened and they immediately canceled their dividend uh, just to immediately make sure. And they had like three years, like the CEO said they could close down for three years 
and they'd be fine. Three years. How many companies can do that? Especially like heavy debt companies like REITs and they could. And man, is it really turned around? I was talking to Matt Frankel about it recently and he pointed out like how smart they were because there's five, there's five Gaylords and they owned four and the one that's in the one that's in, um, the Florida one, I think, is the one they did. No, the one in uh, Colorado Denver, was the one Colorado. they did. Denver, the one in they Colorado did. Oh, was right. it was a joint venture. They bought it during COVID. They bought out bought out their their joint venture partner. Uh, I think it a little bit of a song, <laughs> right? Because they had the money, and maybe their partner wasn't as in as good of a shape. So now they own all of the assets outright. They just entered into a joint venture with. NBC Universal, maybe somebody for like, because again, they, they own the Grand Ole Opry. So like their media rights deal, like that's another, could be a really interesting revenue stream, depending on how they monetize it. They have a little restaurant chain that's becoming popular. These are the, the most valuable like event venues in the U.S. outside of, or convention venues outside of Vegas in the U.S. And they own, they own these five. Yeah, I've been to two of them for conferences and they are ridiculous. They're like cities under a bubble. And just as a person who stayed there and had to pay for food for a couple of days inside one of the hotel resorts, like it ain't cheap. And if they're bringing big conferences there regularly, they're making a ton of money. Okay. So Jason, thinking only about this one year contest, which company in the portfolio, excluding the unportfolio? Do you have the highest conviction in, in terms of doing well by the end of December and which company do you have the lowest conviction in, in terms of doing well by the end of December? This is hard. This is why we build portfolios, right? This is why we're not, this is not horse racing. You know, we don't have to pick the one horse. So I would say probably lowest conviction. This one's actually pretty easy. This is, I would say lemonade again, just because we don't know the most important thing that we need to know to find conviction in their business. So starting with lowest conviction, there's that. Thinking about highest conviction, maybe Datadog. Hmm. And the reason why is it is a very high quality business, right? We talked about security with CrowdStrike. They're really good and important with what they do with data security. And they have all the same issues with a company like CrowdStrike, we need to, can they continue their growth rates started to decelerate some, but it's still very, very high. They have that really high stock-based compensation that's constantly diluting us. Right. And it, you have to factor that in when you think about like holistically thinking about cash flows, but this has been one of the kind of cloud security tech asset light stocks that I still believe in that hasn't kind of benefited from the little bit of a bull run that we've seen in a lot of the other ones. So yeah, I'm going to say Datadog. What about you? It's interesting. I, I wouldn't pick Datadog for the same reason I wouldn't pick CrowdStrike, the thing we already talked about, which is I do wonder that they're not going to be able to keep up with the growth that they need to justify their valuation. So I'll just say that. All right. So mine would be, I hate to pick the same one as you, but I think I'd have to agree that the lowest conviction has to be lemonade. Cause I don't, same thing you said that we just don't have enough visibility into what they could be. I don't, would not be surprised if we get to December, still wondering if they'll ever figure out how to write insurance profitably, but just to be fun, I'll also say I have, I probably have low conviction also in 
person, this is a personal thing, both Simon Property Group and Brookfield Infrastructure, but only because I don't know them super well. So it's sort of like a low conviction because of lack of knowledge. So I'll just kind of throw that out there as a secondary answer. Highest conviction for me, I'm really torn between the trade desk and Mercado Libre, but since I didn't pick Mercado Libre and the audience did, I'm going to go with that. I just, they have so many things going for them. They're in a part of the world that is underserved in the things that they do, e-commerce, fintech, and they just, again, it's the same thing. Every quarter comes out and I look for weakness. I look for what's falling behind and I, I never really see it. And even with the 56% return we've seen so far this year, I'm not looking at it right now, but the last time I looked, I still didn't feel like it was incredibly overvalued because it had been chopped down so much over the course of 2022. So I still think that that company has a really good chance to be the portfolio leader when we get to December. Yeah, it's my largest investment now. It's almost four and a, almost four and a half percent of my portfolio. So I'm going to say this about Brookfield infrastructure real quick. I think this is an important thing because this is one, you know, it's only up 9% only let's, you take 9% and you love it and you're happy with it. Especially again, I, I missed it when we were talking about like total returns, but like data or Simon property dividends is a big part of it. So if you're getting a 9% stock gain in this guy, and this is a yield that's typically between three and 5%, you just had a great year, you know, it's a solid year. But what, what I wanted to say, Jeff, is I'm trying to figure out with interest rates. Now you can get, you know, the stock, the yield, yield on BIPs about 4.4%. You can get, you can get close to that in, in a money market account now, right? You can get 5% in a short-term CD. So obviously you can't get the capital appreciation, but the th here's the thing, that 4.3% yield, barring the past year and a half, right? And the easy money, crazy stock run up that we saw during COVID and post COVID, the, this, the yields never really been below four and a half or 5%, like hardly ever. If you could get it at four point, if you were paying for a 4.3% yield, you were paying too much for the stock. And that's when interest rates were a lot cheaper. So I'm trying to figure out, is, the, is that a reflection of just the market kind of appreciating the quality of the business and its growth prospects more? Or is this going to be an underperformer if rates stay high for a while, just because there's a lot more competition to get that yield without the volatility? I haven't figured that out yet. I hadn't thought about that at all, but hearing you say that makes me wonder if that's something that all companies that pay a dividend are going to be up against. Oh yeah. No, there's no doubt about it. And we we're already, you know, it's, it's weird because we're in that, that flight to safety place a little bit right now. But like you look at a lot of the blue chippers, their yields are kind of the same thing. Their yields are lower than their historical average. And I think there's a reckoning coming for, for a lot of those, a lot of those investors. Let me ask you about Simon property group, because one thing I wonder about, a potential risk for that stock, just thinking about 2023, is if we do actually enter into a recession or the economy, you know, the consumers tighten the belt, so to speak, I, I do feel like that will impact them. You know, there was so much hand wringing during the pandemic that no one was ever going to go back to a mall. And you saw that in how Simon Property Group stock 
got slammed during the pandemic and then, you know, probably didn't rebound as much as maybe it should have. But I, that is something I think is a slight risk. I mean, I'm the one who made the reckless prediction on our earlier show that there wouldn't be a recession in 2023, but... And now here you are talking about a recession. Jeff. But if there is one, I mean, if we're going to look take at the one-year contest... Come on, take a team here, Santoro. I'm just saying, if there is one, that could be a headwind for... Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that's already factored in. I really do. Mm. Again, this is this was $180 stock in 2019. It's $111 today. The yield, the the it's the inverse of with Brookfield. The six six percent plus yield you get right now, that's by far. I mean, this is a stock that was yielding between four and five percent so most of the 20 teens. So, I think largely the market's kind of priced that in. Over the long term, I think this is a good price. I really do. That's our that's our quarterly update. We'll be back with another one in three months, give or take. Yeah, early July, we will talk about Q2. Okay, let's take a break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome back. And uh, hey Jeff. I think I just bought a penny stock. And that's our new segment. Did Jason just buy a penny stock? So as is often the case, I receive a random text message from Jason during the middle of the day. Today's was I did a thing. But since we called our B block segment that last week, we decided to change the top the the, the title to did Jason just buy a penny stock? Because it turns out he might have. So why don't you, why don't you tell us what you did, Jason? And then we can discuss. So I bought a stock and I paid about a buck 50 a share. And it's a stock that has a market capitalization of less than $88 million. So it really has almost all of the hallmarks of being a penny stock, Jeff. It does. So I know this is not typically how you invest. You are not a penny stock or close to penny stock buyer. So why did you do this? So I've talked a lot about you know my typical investing style and the barbell approach of buying a pretty substantial amount of companies that are kind of more of the growth focused, being willing to pay a little bit higher premium for those best in class companies that are growing and disrupting. And then the other end is like the more stable Dividend payers, dividend growers, part of my portfolio just creates some good balance across market cycles. And like sometimes they get counter cyclical and maybe you, you find there are better opportunities to buy in one of those cohorts while the others are kind of running up and vice versa. So I think it's a good strategy to deploy capital more effectively over time. But every once in a while, I get kind of a wild hair, kind of an itch to scratch. And I start kind of digging around in companies that are maybe former high flyers that maybe have fallen. And I think they're kind of poised for a turnaround. Maybe they're in a down cycle in their industry or something like that, or they've really struggled to do a thing, but I think they're going to be able to do the thing. And the stock is just super beaten down. So it's not even a turnaround. It's just never done. And I'm hoping they can do it. And I generally try to find, you know, number one, 
thinking about it from the penny stock term. So if we define penny stock as a non-business, a, a corporate entity that is a non-business, that is just a shell used to shill and to pump and get people to buy nothing and from you at a higher price or at a lower price or at a higher price, then you paid for it. So then you can sell it to them and make money. And then that's the dump. This is not that. This is, it's a company called Acuity Ads. Our Canadian listeners, I know they're going to, they're going to be familiar with it. It's a Canadian ad tech company. And this is, the stock was, you go back to early 2021, the stock was, it had a market cap over $1.4 billion. The right around $1.4 billion US and the stock is a $25, $25 stock. And now it's a buck 50. It's an ad company. So think about what's happened in, in the ad industry. Think about all of the different ad tech companies out there, even the big ad players like Alphabet and Meta platforms for, you know, for different reasons, but partly because of the down cycle of the ad industry and how tough it's been. And that's affected Acuity ads. They've also been trying to transition some of their product and hasn't necessarily gone that well. Management's kind of maybe coughed up more excuses than necessarily results. And the stock has fallen, right? It's been compounded by the struggles of the of the broader ad market and then their struggles individually as a company. So the, the thing I'm wondering is, did you buy this for the first time today? Or is this a position you had in your portfolio for a while and it you just, so it's been on your radar because of that? So I, I bought some, I think back in late 20 or probably late 2020, I bought some before it went on its crazy run up. It was just a really small position, never really paid a ton of attention to it. And because it was a small position, I wasn't paying that much attention to it. I, I haven't really peeled back the layers, right? It wasn't a high conviction idea. The stock just continued to fall. And I'm really, really glacial about selling. But when I actually looked at the company, I was going through my portfolio thinking about selling some losers. And as part of that process, I don't say, oh, well, the stock's down. I'm going to sell. I say, okay, the stock's down. Let's go find out why. And I started doing some research and started digging in. And the business is certainly struggling by some measure of struggle, depending on how you define it. But, you know, this is a company with, like I said, the market cap's about $88 million, but the enterprise value is less than $30 million. What does that mean? That means it's got a ton of net cash. It actually has almost $63 million in cash and short-term investment. That's US dollars, by the way. So that's twice its enterprise value in cash and three quarters of its market cap yeah. is in cash. Yeah. Here's the important one, Jeff. Just because it has cash doesn't mean it's going to keep that cash. That's the important thing. And this, it's been a cash flow positive business. You look at operating cash flow. Uh, since 2020, it's generated positive operating cash flow every year. That's come down, right? Generated about one and a half million in positive operating cash last year. Free cash flow burned about one and a half million last year. But again, it has $63 million in cash. We know they're spending on their business to try to shift um, their customers to uh, and, and expand in a different um, in some other products that they're offering. And it feels like one of those, the market is priced in a scenario that just seems a lot less likely. It's, I, guess it, I guess the best way to say it is it feels like the market's pricing in 
like a worst case scenario that I just think is wildly unlikely to happen. It's interesting. The thing that jumps out to me, like just separate from the company itself is one of the things I struggle with, which is like my constant quest to own less companies because of my obsessive need to keep track of everything in my portfolio. But this is a perfect example of why it's maybe good to be glacially glacial to sell and keep some small starter positions just in your portfolio because they stay on your radar. And whether it's because you're looking to sell something and then decide not to, or I know I have had a, I've had a couple in my portfolio just over the past, maybe six to nine months where they were living near the bottom. You know, if I sorted by returns and then over time you see, oh, now they're in, now they're moving up. Oh, now they're kind of near the middle. And oh, all of a sudden they're in the top, you know, third. And it, it can be a, you know, an indicator to, Hey, take a look at this. Something's going right. Or the market's seeing something different now. And then the opposite can be true. Also, there could be a stock that was near the top that has slid to the bottom. It's something I'm constantly reminding myself when I get the urge to sell that maybe I should keep some small positions around. I have some things in my portfolio that are literally like $170 worth of a company, right? I might as well just keep them and keep an eye on them, right? I mean, I, that, that's what I was thinking. Is that part of the reason you become hesitant to sell certain companies? Because you want to just sort of keep them on your radar. So I think that the key is that anything, anything I leave in my portfolio needs to serve a purpose. And I think broadly that makes sense. Even if it's just a really small amount of money, however you measure it, if it's not doing you something, it needs to, it needs to come out. And with Acuity ads, because I am really glacial and I've just been making a lot of assumptions about the state of the ad market and the things that I know have been an issue with its business, pushing it down, but it was time to really look closely. And if you don't ever take the time to look closely and you're leaving it there just because it's gotten smaller, you're not helping yourself. You know, if you have five or 10 of those and it's a few hundred bucks in each one, that's a reasonable amount of money that you'd be much better deploying into something you actually have some conviction in. So I think that's really important. Yeah. And this that's was my, a rare situation. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was, was going to say, that's my struggle, right? Because like, I see yeah. both sides of that. Like, I understand I could pull all those tiny positions together and dump it into Mercado Libre or the trade desk yeah. companies that I said on this podcast, I really had high conviction in. But I'm, I'm also at the same time with most of them, a little bit afraid that I'll sell it, forget about it. And then realize way down the road, oh, I probably should have held on to that, you know? So I, I, yeah. I, it's one thing I constantly kind of balance in my brain. Well, and it's interesting because this is one that came out because I was doing the similar exercise with, with another company, Tellurian listeners probably know that have followed me for a while. This is one that I had really, really high conviction in a few years ago that they just, they've had so many missteps and they haven't been able to fund if you can't get the funding to build an export, a natural gas export facility right now in this environment, when Europe is starving for natural gas, are you ever going to really be able to do it? Right. So I initially, my thought was I was going to sell a big portion of my tellurium, which has been a mostly a loser for me. And I was going to flip most of those proceeds over into another company called STEM. That's also been a loser but I have a lot of conviction in what they're doing and like they're doing a lot of stuff, right? So in that process of looking for capital to deploy into STEM, that's when I stumbled across Acuity Ads. And it's rare that I find one of these that's really beaten down. 
that I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to double my position. Usually I end up moving on and moving that capital to somewhere I have conviction. So do you view what you did with Acuity ads as like sort of the, the blurred line between investing and speculating? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Because this is, because I'm, I'm making a calculated bet that they're able to turn things around and that they've got the capital to do it. And the market is just deeply undervaluing the business right now. And all they have to do is just not fuck up. All they have to do is just do an okay job. And the market itself, just the cycle turning is going to be enough to make this worth twice as much as it is now. I don't, you know, I don't know. I'm just kind of banding that term out there, but certainly I'm not going to lots of like Tyler Crow. I do a ton of videos with Tyler over on the, our YouTube channel. Like he's probably like, he's going to listen to this and his head might explode. I mean, it might absolutely explode because he doesn't tend to do these sorts of of things. And, so, I, and, I, and yeah. I don't either. And that's why I asked the question, because I, I've said it before, even though I don't really do it, I really don't see a problem with responsibly with a, a small part of your overall portfolio, taking some speculative bets, as long as they're based on some sort of thesis you've been able to put together. You know, it's funny because I don't even, and other people do, but like, I don't even like see this as like a fun a fun thing to do. I think it is a, I am taking on a not insurmountable or not insignificant amount of risk that I'm just completely wrong because I'm an idiot. And there's something I just didn't bother to figure out enough to understand. And that could be, that could be the case, but I'm factoring that in by not risking capital. That's going to up in my retirement. It's if you want to make it an analogy to the, the trip to Vegas. Yeah. I'm not taking the mortgage money. And I also, just in closing, and then we can wrap it up here, but I think for investors who often feel the itch due to inactivity, because it can be a very inactive thing. You buy something, you let it sit for a decade. I think for people who do feel the need to do something, stuff like this could be the way to go versus constantly leaping in and out of the actual positions you have conviction in, like day trading or swing trading and things like that. Like this could be a way to maybe, you know, get, get some of that desire to do something out of your system. So just another thought I had on it. And if you don't believe Jeff, just refer to the studies that have shown that dead people's portfolios and the portfolios of people who lose their passwords to their brokerages do better than you, you broadly, not yeah. you, you just, yeah, maybe that'll be enough to not take the mortgage money and follow me into acuity ads. <laughs> All right. We did it, Jeff. We did we, it. We did it. All right, friends, as always, Jeff and I love to give our answers to these investing questions, these hard questions about money, but you have to find your own answers. I believe in you. All right, Jeff, we'll see you next time. See you next time.